Well, it's a, a joy to come back and open the Word again and to uh, speak from it. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn back to Hebrews 11, uh, verses 17 uh, through 22 is the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, in this session, Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 22. And I've titled this message, Faith's Reality. We've considered faith's certainty, we've considered faith's deliverance. Uh, And we're going to now consider faith's reality. I love biblical counseling. I'm invested in it. I I have, uh, really it was was a man, pastor named Kerry Hardy, who's a pastor of Twin City Bible Church that came out to New Zealand. And I'd been in youth ministry for a number of years, came out to a conference and he taught biblical counseling. And for the first time in my life, I realized that uh, this was, Um, the answer to many of the issues that I had been finding myself in when counseling young people. Um, I love the Word of God, of course, and I would share the Word with them, but I I never understood how sufficient God's Word was uh, in, in in that process. And the human condition uh, is that you and I and every human being born in this planet will die. We're all gonna die. You say, it's not very encouraging. Well, it is if you know what's going on after death. But the human condition is we're all going to die. We die, why? Because of the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And I often find myself in counseling people who are devastated through some trial they're facing or they've just received the, the bad news that they have terminal cancer or some issue in their life and it's terminal and they're given some framework. And I've sat next to these people, these men, these women who are just broken by the sudden reality that their life is soon on this earth to be over. Well, that's human. That's natural. It's why we're called to comfort one another. It's why we're called to weep with those who weep. But as believers, we need to stop thinking we're going to live on this earth forever. And we need to to start living in the reality that the day is already established, that the number of days of your life has already been set by God on this planet. And to live each day as if it is the last day. In those moments when counseling people who face the reality that the end is near, it is my job, it is your job, it is the responsibility of believers to point them to the one who, although unseen, is near and his purposes are being fulfilled. There are two men in history who faced their mortality from different perspectives. The first is a French statement named Talleyrand. I had to look this guy up. But he left a death paper in which he had written this. He said, and I quote, Behold, 83 years passed away. What cares? What agitation? What anxieties? What ill will? What sad complications? And all without other results except great fatigue of mind and body and a profound sentiment of discouragement with regard to the future and disgust with regard to the past. In contrast to that death note, there's another man who's more familiar to you. His name is D.L. Moody. He's an American preacher, and 
On the other hand, this is what he said to a friend when facing death. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am right now. I shall have gone higher than is all out of this old clay tenement into, this, into a house that is immortal, a body that sin cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned unto his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in, thir- in 1837, and I was born in the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh will die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. Wow. What a difference. What is it that brings men to the doorway of death with such different responses? Well, the answer is, quite simply, a faith born in the sovereignty of a God who enables them to see beyond the physical world to the realities of the eternal. Faith's reality. I've often said over the years of ministry that young people in contrast to these two old codgers that died, I've often said young people are not looking for a reason to live. They're actually looking for a reason to die. Well, I've said that all my life of young people, but it's true of all of us here, isn't it? Do you have a reason to die? I'm not kind of being morbid here, but are you, and I'm not being fickle here either, but are you looking forward to that day when you leave mortality behind and gain immortality. I am. Some of you are more than me because you're older than me. And those aches and pains that never used to exist are increasing by the day. It's difficult living in this fallen body. I have eyesight issues going on. I sat with a lady on the plane, 81 years old, 81 years old, didn't know the Lord, had been religious at some level, but basically lived a life for herself, that was her own testimony, and she said, I'm going blind, and she said, I don't understand, why does God let this happen, and I said, so that you will look beyond your mortality to eternity, the gift of faith sees beyond the doorway of death into the glories of heaven. And it brings about a certain kind of hope and freedom in our lives. And while many choose to bury their heads in the sand when it comes to the brevity of this life, which the Bible says you are but a vapor, and and they choose to live only for the moment, I want you to see there is a much better way to live. There's a much better way to live this life and face by facing your mentality, and that is the way of faith rooted and grounded in Christ. I'm glad we sung that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I'm glad we sung the first song uh, in this session too. These are, these are things that are so true and important to us. And saving faith is designed by God to help you look beyond this finite world and to see those eternal realities of a God's providential plan in which He has a glorious place for you to spend eternity and a privilege to participate in. In Hebrews 11, 17 to 22, we get, catch a glimpse here of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all facing the trial of death. So let's read this together. Verse 17, Hebrews 11. 
It says, by faith, Abraham, when he is tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. It was only as I studied this chapter that I realized all of these men, the author put all these men in a row, all at the point of facing death in order to make a clear statement. And I want you to see these four men as they display faith's reality of eternal life and overcome the fear of death. You know, the Bible says, Hebrews, it says that we, that men live their lives enslaved to the fear of death. Christians don't need to do that. The first example of faith's reality is Abraham, it says, obeyed God here. Abraham obeyed God while facing death. Imagine for a moment that God had come to you and demanded that one of your children die. And he offered, uh, and, and, and this child was to be offered up in that death as a sacrifice to God. Imagine that. Uh, but take it one step further. Imagine God not only asks you to give up your child, but imagine that he also requires that you be the one who kills that child. You have to be the one who binds the hands of the child and places the child on an altar that's been prepared and you must plunge this knife into the child's heart, killing him. Let's take this one step further. Not only must you kill this child as an offering, but then you must take that body and burn it as an offering, a burnt offering to God. Standing by, watching the lifeless body of your child be consumed to ashes. Men, that's exactly what God asked Abraham to do. Genesis 22, 1 to 2. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. I don't know about you, but it just seems so wrong from a human perspective. And I'm sure it seems so wrong from Abraham's perspective as a human being too. This was a trial. This was a supreme trial of Abraham's faith and the faithfulness and the goodness of God who covenanted to bless him and future generations through him of which Isaac was a unique and special gift of God. Abraham was under no illusions. This was not his child in the sense that people say, these are my children. He understood this was his child as gifted to him by God, which really meant this is God's child and I am but as a parent, a steward of this child. 
back in Hebrews 11, the author focuses on three truths about God that Abraham's faith depended on. And I want you to see these truths that you too can trust God when you face this kind of trial. Firstly, he trusted the sovereign authority of God. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that word tested is the same Greek word as the word tempted used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13, and it describes an action where purpose is either for, the purpose of this action is either for good or evil. In James 1, it is used to describe evil temptation. In James 1, 13 to 14, it, James explains it this way. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, that's the same verb, verb as being used here in Hebrews 11, let no one say when he's, be, when he's being tempted, uh, that he is, when he is tempted, uh, but here he's used to describe something of an evil purpose. Not, let him not say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but one, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own heart and lust. Satan, in contrast here, is calling, is, Satan, in con by contrast, is called the tempter and does tempt us for the purpose of leading us into sin. And here's evil being put forward as a temptation. But should we as believers expect this same kind of testing and tempting, if you like, of our faith? And the answer is yes, we should. The testing of our faith is actually normal in the Christian life and it's necessary in the Christian life. It's so normal that James calls believers to consider this testing from God of one's faith as all joy. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's not only normal, as I said, but it's also necessary. And this is where Peter picks it up and he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So should we expect testing? Absolutely. It's normal and it's necessary. Why are we tested? We are tested to bring us from spiritual immaturity to maturity. James 1 verse 2 says we are, a, we are to consider it all joy, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The proof that we have genuine faith is by what it produces when under trial. If we submit to God by trusting Him in the trial, then we'll experience greater Christ-likeness seen in the deep contentment and the lasting patience in God uh, rather than in, in bitterness and impatience towards God. We must learn that Christ is all we need. And a mature Christian can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. To die is more of Christ. Now, I know your translation doesn't say that. <laughs> For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's he saying? It's to gain the fullness of what I'm living for. So it is right to say for me to live as Christ right now, but to die is to be of more of Christ, to receive more of that. And so trials bring us towards, from immaturity towards maturity. And all of you men are in somewhere in that scale. And it's okay if you're immature in your Christian faith. Maybe you're just a young Christian. It's okay. 
I mean, we don't, we don't berate children for being children. And we shouldn't for children in the faith either. We should love them, care for them, nurture them, teach them, instruct them, bring them up. And God's in the process of doing that. And so we have in 1 John children and young men and fathers, these different categories of faith and how it's expressed. But here we're talking about men who are facing, these are fathers of the faith. They're facing the issue of death. So to bring us from immaturity to maturity, that's one reason for trials. The second reason is to bring forth genuine praise, glory, and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is tested It's tested in order to show its true quality and prove that it's not something that you and I have come up with by ourselves, but rather that our faith is a gift from God and that that gift is a reality that resounds to the glory of God, that it is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Evidence and reality come by faith. Well, how difficult, you say, will this testing be, Andy? Like, I, I, I don't know what I can bear. Like, you know, I'm going to be burned at the stake. Well, I don't know. I don't know, but I can tell you this. I know that whatever testing you face, it will not be beyond what you can bear. <laughs> I hold on to that one real tight. It will not be, on, be beyond what you can bear. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul encourages us stating, no testing or temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, so many people misread that verse, and I don't have time to get into the whole thing here, but I just want to say to you, read it carefully. It doesn't say he's going to take the trial away. It does say he's going to give you the ability to endure it. And the way I understand that is I had a little daughter who she hated climbing mountains, and she hated putting on her backpack, and she would grumble and complain the whole way up the hill as a child. And sometimes I would just get so sick of it, I would take the backpack off her and add it to mine, and we would climb the hill together. But as she matured, as she grew, the backpack got lighter and lighter until she didn't grumble anymore. And really, the backpack didn't change weight at all. She just matured under the weight of the backpack, and she carried it to the top of the hill. And then she would boast about how much she put in the pack to climb to the top of the hill. And it was just wonderful to see that transition. It's the same in the Christian life. You will face trials and tribulations, and initially you will find them heavy and, and, and burdensome. But under the weight of it, over a period of time, as you learn to, to endure under it, as you learn to honor the Lord under that weight, whether it's sickness, whether it's finances, whether it's a difficulty in life, a circumstance, whatever it is, you will become stronger in faith. And sooner or later, that issue will not be part of what you consider to be a trial. And so true faith rests in God's faithfulness and sovereignty over everything And and God tests our faith, but with every testing, there is a potential temptation. And the temptation is to yield to our lusts and our fears rather than to walk by faith, trust in God. The way of escape is simply this. It's not avoiding the cause of the test. It's the ability 
while in the test to believe in God's word, to take God's word by faith and so be able to endure or bear up under the trial without sinning. Without sinning. And so as I counsel people, I mean, people come in, they've got a, an unbelieving wife or they've got rebellious kids or they've got difficult job circumstances or they've got family issues going on and you know, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's all around us and, and, and it affects us, all of us. These are all trials. And when you tell them, well, you know, God has allowed this trial. God's sovereign. He could have removed you from this trial, even had you avoid this trial, but he didn't. He allowed it in your life for your good. And I walk him through this process. And you know, at the end of the session, they'll say, so, God, so God's allowed this for my good? Yes, he has, for your maturity. And there are two ways our testing can come, either from an expression, an express command of God, as in the case of Abraham here, or from God's providential workings in this fallen world. In this case with Abraham, there is a direct command being given to Abraham by God. And this brings us to the second truth about God and Abraham's placing his faith in him. And that is, he placed his faith in the guaranteed provision of God. He obeyed without argument. It says he offered up Isaac. Wow. Wow. What a faith. He arose early the next morning. He took all that he needed for the offering. He traveled three days journey. And then he saw the place that he was to make the offering. In Genesis 22, 6 through 8, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked up on together. And Isaac spoke to the father and said, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold. The fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. There's no questioning. There's no questioning here about the purpose or the right of God to require such a thing of Abraham. Instead, there's an immediate and settled obedience and God has, in Abraham's mind, the sovereign right and authority to give such a command and his responsibility is to obey that command. And he can't do that by human reason or human sight. He can only do that by faith. And this phrase offered up is in the perfect tense, meaning that Abraham had complete and total willingness to obey the Lord. In other words, you could say, for Abraham, this was already a done deal. He had already accepted this was gonna be the outcome. And so he obeyed when it seemed to him absolutely contradictory. Not only did he embrace uh, this provision, guaranteed provision of God and obey it without argument, but he obeyed when it seemed contradictory. It goes on to say in, Hebrew, in, in our passage, and he who received the promises was offering up his only son. It was he on whom it is said, and Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Well, if you kill him, you're not gonna have any descendants. Contradiction. How many times in our lives does it seem that God's called us to an absolute contradiction? He does, because God loves to use the contradictions in our lives to prove to us that he is indeed in control. 
And so he obeys. And the fact that he was willing to give up his son demonstrates the surrendered nature of his heart and his thinking toward God. He was about to take the son of promise, the, one of the, the promised son through whom the covenant promise could be fulfilled and to do so, something so contrary to human reason that it seemed absurd. But his faith in God's faithfulness and covenant promises enabled him to live beyond, beyond the boundaries of his own rationalism and, tr- and, and instead trust in a God who, who could even raise the dead. Faith for us is the same, isn't it? Faith in Christ alone is the source of an incredible offering. It is the reality of knowing who Jesus Christ is, that in Him we possess life, indeed true life, abundant life, full and complete life, and that enables us then to yield all other loves of peoples and all other loves of things in this world to the greater love of walking where he calls us to walk. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, take up a cross and what? Follow me. Some people say, why are you living in Southern California when you come from a beautiful country like New Zealand? Well, humanly speaking, it seems ridiculous. And I just have to say to them, the only answer I have to that is, I've chosen to follow God, where God has led me. Thirdly, Abraham obeys God, believing that God himself would provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And as he did, as he raised that knife to slay the son, the angel of the Lord calls to him saying, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, do nothing for him, to him, for I, have, I now know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. We'll stop. So this test was not about Abraham killing his son. It was about Abraham. It was not about a sacrifice. It was about Abraham. Well, yes, that is a sacrifice. It was about Abraham having a heart that was sacrificially living out reverentially a a life before God, loving God more than any other love. And then it says, Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And so he offered that ram in place of his son Isaac for the burnt offering. In Genesis 22, 14, Abram called that place Yahweh, the Lord, will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Well, there's a third truth about Abraham placing his faith in God. Um, and, and, And a truth about God that Abraham put his faith in, and that is the awesome power of God. He considered that God was able to resurrect the dead. The thought of sacrificing Isaac surely grieved his heart, but he knew that he'd have to have his son back in order for God, who was faithful to his promises, to fulfill his promise. And so he carefully calculated this request in light of the nature of God, and he knew that God would not, in fact could not, take away his son permanently, or else he would have to go back on his own word, which is impossible, for God cannot lie. So rather than Abraham taking a blind leap in the dark, as some people consider faith to be, 
Abraham is actually taking a solid step into the light, into the reality of the presence, power, and person of God. He considered this God in his mind. He considered the attributes and the character of God, and he made his decision based on the holiness of his God. He considered God's love, God's faithfulness, God's justice, and God's strength in, truth of the, in, in light of the covenant promises, and he concluded that God must be planning then to raise this son from the ashes back to life. That's the logic of faith's reality. Now, we know from the Old Testament narrative that the Lord stopped him and was told not to stretch out his hand and God provided the ram. But the effect for Abraham and the picture for us is that it appears as if Isaac had died and was rescued from the jaws of death. And the result was, as an author states, that the patriarch of faith received Isaac back as a type, a type, what type? a type of a future son, a type of a future Messiah. God himself would offer his only begotten son on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And I believe Abraham understood that. Abraham said to his son when he asked, where is the offering, where is the lamb? And and Isaac responds without missing a beat, God himself will provide the lamb. Now do you see why he thought he should kill the son? Because he understood this Isaac was a provision from God. He actually began in his mind to contemplate the reality that this Isaac might be that Messiah. Wow. With with what knowledge, with what understanding, so little. And yet he believed. And he faced this issue of death with confidence knowing there would be deliverance because of the reality of what his faith was being placed in. And of course, we know that's to be true. We know God did provide the lamb, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know, I have a brother who converted to Judaism left the Christian faith, became a rabbi. And when he reads the story of Abraham, he said there's no way that Yahweh would ever have requested this of Abraham. It's an impossibility because God says you shall not murder. That's a small view of God, isn't it? That's a logical human reasoning working its way out. So they translate this passage in a very different way in order to avoid what they see as an incongruency to the character and nature of God. But the the character and nature of God is fully revealed to us as it was to Abraham and that God himself was going to give his son unto death. And some people struggle with that. And in, in, in the evangelical church today, there's a, there's a huge move away from this concept of, uh, of the atonement, the punitive judgment of God on his son. And they, and they want to make the atonement something that's more like a, in kind. It's sort of like a, an image or a, a representation of covering. 
Because what they don't want to admit is that the God of heaven took his own son and slew him for you and me. So that through his death, you and I might find life. This is Abraham. What a lesson. Men, we need to obey God while facing death. We need to look beyond the doorway of death and see the fulfillment of what Christ died to produce in you and in me. And we need to die well. The Apostle Paul died well. I fought the fight, I finished the course. I've kept the faith. There is now, therefore, for me, the crown of righteousness and all those who loved his glorious appearing. Paul understood his death was just a translation from this life into eternal life. The second example of faith's reality is seen in Isaac. Isaac blessed his sons when facing death. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. And so even though Isaac here was tricked you read the story, he was tricked into blessing his son Jacob rather than his favorite son Esau, who was the, the hunter, the man's man. This firstborn of the twins, uh, he, 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 he stuck with the blessing that he gave to Jacob, even though he was tricked into it, but he stuck with it. Why did he stick with it? Because he understood the providential workings of God. And he blessed this son Jacob by faith, knowing that indeed this was God's will. You know, sometimes we, we have a plan and we think this is what God's doing and we start working down that pathway and, and it's all we're, all, we're trusting the Lord in that and all of a sudden there's a switcheroo and it all goes to custard and something else comes along. And, and that's the point in life, isn't it, when we struggle the most. Because at that point, now, we've got to make a decision. Is my faith in God was my faith in the idea of what I think God should be. And so Isaac blessed not the favorite son, but Jacob. He lived longer than any of the other patriarchs, and yet less space in Genesis and Hebrews is devoted to him than to the others. Isaac was easily the least spectacular of uh, and the most ordinary of the four patriarchs. He was less dynamic and less colorful. He was generally quiet and passive, as seen in that way. And we know more of his failures than of his successes. And yet, God remained faithful to the covenant promise and continued to bless him. And because of a famine, Isaac moved his family to Gerah, where he was there. And while he was there, God spoke to him in a remarkable and encouraging vision. Listen to this vision. This is Genesis 26, 3 through 4. It says, Sojourn in this land. This is the Lord speaking. Sojourn in this land, and I will, be to, I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and will give your descendants all of these lands, and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, the covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac's Father, we're passed on to Isaac in this, in this direct intercourse with God, uh, and, and these promises alone should have kept Isaac from worry and fear because God could not have fulfilled them if Isaac were not 
protected. And not only that, the Lord specifically told him, I will be with you and I will bless you. And like his father before him, he trusted God to provide a son of promise through his barren wife, Rebecca, and he received twin sons, Esau and Jacob, loved Esau, the older, and yet Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. And as his father had done with him, Isaac passes on the blessings of God's promise to his sons by faith. It says in our text, by faith, Abraham blessed Jacob and Esau. Let me stop here again and speak to you dads. Do your children know the blessing you're inferring to them? Do they see what you see? Do they know what you see? Do you say to your children, son, the blessing of God is on your life. The presence of God is with you. I see God using you in great ways. Do you have that kind of faith that sees if God has saved a child, that God has purposes and intent and a plan for that child's life, that he would glorify God? Do your children know that that's what excites you? When I was called into the ministry, I had just not long completed college. I, I came home to the farm. The farm was too small to support two families. I'd gotten married and and I, I, I began to, to understand what God wanted for my life and I realized that couldn't be fulfilled on a little farm tucked away in the middle of nowhere. And the burden of shepherding God's people became overwhelming to me and I went to my dad. I was the only son in the family who had any interest in the farm. None of my siblings were interested. I was the only one who trained for farming and I said, Dad, I can't do it. My father just told me, he said, son, the farm's yours. You can, I, I'm just going to hand it to you. It was about, at that stage, I think the farm was worth about four and a half million dollars. I'm just going to hand it to you, but mom and I just need to be able to live here and live out our days. I said, dad, I can't do it. There's another calling on my life. And he wanted to know more, and I explained that I, I, I just had this burden for the people of God that were sheep without a shepherd, and, and I saw the needs in the flock, and, and the tears began to flow down my dad's face. And then he said, son, you've chosen the better path. You've chosen the better path. He said, it's disappointing for me because you would have been the fourth generation on this land and none of your siblings want this land. But he said, you have my 100% blessing. And God gave me seven years of the most special relationship that a, a son can ever have with a father. And that's a spiritually centered, a Christ-centered relationship where every step I took my dad was not far behind, praying, supporting, and blessing. Well, back to our story. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. He blessed them both, ultimately. He had absolute certainty that God's promises would come to pass, and his struggle was 
The struggle, however, was through which son that blessing would come. He ended up being deceived. How is Isaac acting, you say, in faith when he's being deceived and doesn't even know what he's doing? Well, to his credit, if you read the text, when Isaac discovers that he's been deceived in faith, he understood that God's word to Rebecca at the birth of the twins had actually now truly come to pass. At the birth of the twins, back in Genesis 25, 23, God directly spoke to Rebecca saying, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And the author of Hebrews is making the point that by blessing his sons, Isaac was acting in faith that God would fulfill this prophecy even, even with the great divide that now existed between the two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so Isaac told Esau he had blessed his brother Jacob and then then affirmed, yes, and he shall be blessed. What confident faith. So in spite of the shortcomings and the failures as a man, Isaac by faith saw beyond his own death and cherished the promises of God above his own desires and believed in their fulfillment through Jacob rather than Esau. Men, this should be the same case for you and me. This should cause us to be steadfast and immovable and always about the work of the Lord, knowing knowing with certainty that our work is never in vain in the Lord. God's word never goes forth and returns empty or void. Be faithful, men. Be faithful with your wife, with the word. Be faithful with your children, with the word. Be faithful in your home group, with the word. Be faithful as a pastor, in the word. There's a third example in our text. Jacob worshiped God when facing death. This is faith's reality for Jacob. By faith, it says, verse 21, Jacob, who was named Israel, meaning contending with God, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. He said, what can you get out of that verse? Well, let's see what God does here. But faith, we see here two lessons. Number one, faith blesses others even when circumstances seem to contradict God's promises. The event mentioned in Hebrews 11 is recorded back in Genesis 48. The scene is set from 41 to 46 of Genesis. A severe famine in the land meant Jacob sent his sons, except Benjamin, to go to Egypt, where they heard there was grain. They needed grain to stay alive. In in chapter 42, verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. That was, by the way, a fulfillment of a prophetic dream that Joseph had as a child. Now Joseph was the brother that had been despised. And, 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 And he was the one that his brothers wanted to kill and And they ended up selling him into slavery thanks to the older brother Reuben's cautions. You know the story. Joseph was tested. Joseph tested his brothers, and through the testing, they were. um, uh, Joseph was tested by his brothers, and through that testing, uh, all of these brothers ultimately uh, were humbled. Um, And at that point, Joseph deals with them, not with the authority and power he had now as the second in command of Egypt. But he dealt with them kindly because he could now clearly see God's sovereign hand working all these hardships out 
And the provision of God was being made through Joseph to his family. In Genesis 45, 5, he told his brothers to not be grieved when they discovered who Joseph really was, not to be grieved or to be angry with yourselves, he says, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. I love that. And upon Joseph's request, Jacob and all his sons and their families migrated to Egypt. You know the story. They lived in the land of Goshen. They multiplied and became a mighty nation, a mighty nation. God was fulfilling his covenant to Abraham, wasn't he? Jacob recalled this in his mind. He recalled the appearance to him when the Lord reaffirmed the covenant to him. And then he claims Jacob's, Joseph's two sons for himself as heirs. So his grandchildren are going to be heirs of the promise. In effect, this meant Joseph as the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Reuben, the natural firstborn, had forfeited his, forfeited his position by having relations with his father's concubine, Bildah. And so now Joseph's two sons each receive a full portion of the inheritance. But when Jacob went to lay his hands on the young men for the blessing, he deliberately crossed his hands, laying his right hand on Ephraim, the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh, the older. This troubled Joseph greatly, who tried to take his father's hands and, and change them over. But Jacob replied that he knew exactly what he was doing. Jacob predicted that while both sons would be great, the younger son's descendants would be the greater of the two. What are some practical lessons we can draw from this? We, we need to learn that God's ways are not our ways. That, that God's will is not always in accordance to our will. We need to conform to His will. That God does things according to His sovereign choice. That God has infinite knowledge. That God knows all things. God knows how things are to work out. And God wills and purposes to that end. He's in control from the beginning to the end. And His will would always triumph over ours. And this is true even in His redemptive plan. In James 1.18 it puts it this way, it says, In the exercise of his will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In other words, salvation rests in the will, the sovereign will, and the power of God. Secondly, we need to learn as parents and grandparents to seek spiritual blessings for our children rather than worldly success. If you think about Ephraim and Manasseh, where were they raised? They were raised in the wealthiest, most powerful kingdom of the earth. And their dad was second in command. They were raised in luxury. These boys were attended to by servants. They had the best education available in the world. They were heirs to the huge financial estate. And with all of this, it would have been very natural for any grandfather to have blessed his grandsons by saying something like this, may you prosper in Egypt. As your father has prospered. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he confers to them a blessing, the blessing, the spiritual blessings that came from God through Abraham to him, to Joseph, and now to his grandchildren. If Joseph had been worldly, a worldly minded parent, he could have responded to this blessing this way. He could have gone, 
so what? What's the big deal? You're giving them a double portion of a famine-stricken land in Canaan, a land you don't even own a square foot of except for a burial cave. But here in Egypt, they've got everything. My kids have everything. Uh, they, have, they, they have the world as their oyster. They, they can dream anything they want and live it out. And what are you giving them? Dad, what's this blessing that you're passing on? A piece of dry land that you don't even own. Well, it's bigger than that, of course, but you get the picture. What Jacob's actually giving his grandsons is by faith in God's unfulfilled promises, he's giving these boys the spiritual blessings given to him via Abraham. And this is worth far more than any worldly blessing. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole what? World, but loses what? His soul. Man, we just need to recalibrate. We need to look at our children and understand we're a spiritual father and God's granted us these spiritual blessings called children and we have a responsibility to bless them with spiritual blessings and to teach them about the God who has led you, directed you. There's a third lesson. We need to learn that God in his sovereignty assigns different gifts and places to our children, both materially and spiritually. God made, makes one wealthy and God makes others poor. God's in control of all of that, not you. I've watched fathers, very wealthy men, try and prosper all their children. And it's destroyed some of their kids. And no matter how hard those fathers strive for blessing their kids, even to the last breath of their life, they go on living in poverty. Because why? Because God's in control, not you. I've seen guys try to control life beyond the grave. Men, don't do that. That's not your job. Let God fulfill his purposes. God makes some wealthy, he makes some poor. God gives spiritual gifts as he so chooses to give them, 1 Corinthians 12. But each of us is responsible to use what God's given to us to advance his kingdom. So here's Joseph. Joseph's faith blesses others even when circumstances contradict the promises, seem to contradict the promises of God. But secondly, faith worships God even when circumstances seem to contradict God's promises. It says, and he worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. What does that mean? Well, you could probably make it mean anything if you wanted to, but, but in the context, what does it mean? Why, why, does, why does the author here, why does, why does the Spirit of God highlight this reality of Jacob leaning on the top of his staff and worshiping? Well, worshiping's pretty clear. This leaning on the staff, well, I think, I think it's pretty clear here that Joseph understood the providence of God and was free, even in those circumstances, to worship God, leaning on his staff in the sense that he was trusting in the Lord for the future. Joseph saw a future exodus from slavery as he faced death. Fourthly, he saw a future exodus. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. 
And both the mention of, of the exodus and the orders concerning his bones refer to an incident back in, in Genesis 50. As he was dying, Joseph told his brothers, his fellow Jews, that God would bring them back to the land which he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he made them swear that they would carry his bones back with them to Canaan. And by, by this statement, by this statement, Joseph demonstrates a strong convinced faith in God and his promises throughout his life, even beyond his lifetime. Joseph has resisted the seductive attempts of Potiphar's wife by faith. He remained true to God while imprisoned unjustly. His faith enabled him to interpret dreams on more than one occasion. He dealt in a godly manner with his brothers who had wronged him. He administered the food relief program fairly without greed. But the author of Hebrews skips all of those examples of faith in, Abraham, in Joseph's life and picks up on this one about Joseph's bones. Why? Well, the main reason is it shows this man faced death at a time when God's promises, faced death by faith when God's promises seemed unlikely even to be fulfilled. A lot more could be said about that, but you get the picture. So the temptations, men, that we face, the temptations that Joseph would have faced would have been temptations of success and comfort. And these are often the things that take us out. And I think in, in, in a Western society like we live in America, this materialistic pleasure-seeking society, we easily get dragged into that track. And I would just want to exhort you men and call you men to evaluate your life and your time before God. Are you redeeming the time because the days are evil? Or are you letting all the, the, the voices of this world, the, the pleasures of this world and the comforts of this world fill your life? Faith understands, again, that life is short. And the story of Joseph's bones should remind us not to put our hope in material, in material success, but to realize how empty riches in this world are even as we face the reality of our death, and yet how rich we truly are if our hope is in God's promises. Again, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but you lose your soul? So all of these men, all of these men faced death with a full and confident faith, and you can too when you understand that faith's reality is built outside of you. Faith carries us forward even when life seems contradictory. Faith faces death, trusting God will fulfill his future promises. Let us join Abraham. Let us join Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and live our lives faith, with faithful obedience to the commands of God, with faithful blessings to our children, with faithful worship like Joseph, and faithful hope that God will fulfill his promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's remind ourselves of these patriarchs that many of them died in faith without receiving the promises in this life, but having seen them from afar, they welcomed them. Let each one of us, along with the Apostle Paul, Philippians 1.20, desired that, as he desired that Christ will even now as always be exalted in our body, whether by life or by death. Matthew Henry, when he was on his deathbed at the age of 52, said to his friend, you've been, used, you've been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is my dying statement. 
that a life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. Men, facing death is the acid test of your faith in God. You are called to let go of these things that you cherish and have a faith that sees beyond death, cherishing the blessings of eternity in Christ when you face your own mortality. Men, may you discover a faith that looks beyond the doorway of death to eternal life and glory that's promised to all who love Jesus Christ as their Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a joy, what a blessing to have this hope, this security, this eternal inheritance that you have reserved for us in heaven, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Father, may we see it. May we embrace it by faith. May we live in the reality of that truth, even today, even in trials, and even more when facing our mortality. Father, may we live each day as if today could be the last. May we live it in the joy and the fullness of your glory. And Lord, may you use us to that end, we pray, for the honor and glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.